Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be with you for the first time. Not the first time, but for the first time as your pastor. I don't have to get used to that. Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and while you're finding your place, let me say a few words by way of introduction. I want to begin by talking about beginnings. Now, think in your mind about your own beginnings in life, your first day on a new job, for instance. Or think about the way that others agonize over beginnings, like a young novelist who is trying and agonizing over the very first line of a novel that she sets her hand to write. We give a lot of attention to our own beginnings. We worry over them. We want to be sure that we begin well, that we step off on the right foot. But the beginnings over which we agonize, others are prone to overlook. When I was on my first ship, my first assignment in the Navy, I remember a dear friend of mine now was taking me around the ship, which had just pulled back in from deployment. And he introduced me as the new guy. And he said, would you like to meet the new guy to another one of the officers? And in language I can't repeat here, in the colorful language of a sailor, he essentially said, why would I want to do that? He didn't really care about my first day. And that was my introduction to my first ship on the Navy. Well, sometimes, as I've said, people overlook the beginnings of others. We do that with the books that we read. We do that with our inter- in our interactions with others. And yet we must remind ourselves that someone else's beginning is also a beginning of our own. This morning as we come to Luke's gospel, we look at the very first four verses of this gospel, we see one masterfully crafted sentence whereby Luke sets the agenda for us as those who hear the word of God preached 2,000 years later. He tells us and instructs us how he wants us to approach this text. And yet it's very easy because it's not, strictly speaking, part of the story, part of the narrative, to overlook this beginning. But if we do so, we neglect an important part of what Luke would have us do, how Luke would have us prepare to read God's holy word. And so, as we come to Luke chapter 1, would you follow along with me? Let's attend to this beginning where the Holy Spirit speaks by the hand of Luke, saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Father in heaven, this morning we come to you, knowing that before we begin to look to your holy word, we must begin by coming to you in prayer and asking that you would open our minds and soften our hearts, that you would tune us to your word, that we might read it well, that we might hear it well. So Lord, we ask that you would do that in our hearts and in our minds this morning, that your word might be impressed upon our minds and on our hearts, that we might go forth from here, not only as hearers of it, but as doers of it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a question. What makes a gospel a gospel? 
If you were to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would see many differences, especially as you open to the very beginning of their gospel accounts. Here, Luke begins with an address to a man named Theophilus. It's very different from Mark, who begins right in the middle of things, saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then right away, we're in the middle of the ministry of John the Baptist. This evening, Lord willing, we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, and we'll see that Matthew 2 begins in a unique way with a genealogy. And John, in his own way, pushes even further back than the beginning of Christ's ancestry. He pushes back to a time before there was time when he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what we have to observe in this is that a gospel is not defined by how it begins, because it can begin in many ways. But what defines the gospels? In other words, what makes them good news is the fact that each one narrates a story, a true story, a historical story, of the life and ministry of a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who we've come to know as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent from God. And it begins that narrative very nearly in every gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist through to the cross, whereby Christ died for our sins, to the resurrection, whereby he rose to guarantee us life forevermore. We accept him by faith. That's what makes a gospel a gospel. That's what every one of the gospels shares in common. You could put it this way. It's a narrative from one baptism to another baptism by means of a baptism. You see, Jesus spoke about his death on the cross as a baptism that I have to undergo, whereby he was crucified and buried in the ground and raised to newness of life. That's what our baptism signifies as well. And it looks forward, the the, the baptism of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ looks forward to that day at the beginning of Acts, in fact, where God would baptize his church with the Holy Spirit. And so it's a narrative of one baptism to another baptism by way of a baptism. That's what unites all the Gospels and makes them good news. But as I've alluded, these Gospels are also different not least in the way in which they begin. So we must attend to their beginnings to see why it is that each gospel writer begins in the way in which he begins. Here, I want you to take a metaphor in your mind, to take an illustration in your mind by which we can understand what Luke is doing. I talked about beginnings, first day on the job or a novelist's first sentence, but I want you to think about another beginning. If you were to go to a concert to see an orchestra play a symphony, the very first thing that you would see is not the conductor standing before the orchestra. The very first thing that you would see when the orchestra begins to play is the principal violinist stand up and point to the oboist, and the oboist would play the A, and everyone would tune their instruments to the oboe so that everyone is in tune together. Everyone is aware of this beginning. Everyone is paying attention to this beginning. And even the audience knows at this point when they hear the A played by the oboe that it's time for them to silence. It's time for them to quiet down and cease their discussions and give their attention to this orchestra that's about to play the symphony. In the same way, 
in these first four verses, I want you to think about these as the oboe playing the A by which we tune our minds and our hearts to attend to God's Word. In other words, Luke is showing us how we can prepare to receive God's Word in this Gospel. We've noted what he says. It's one long sentence, but it's full of insight. It's full of information. It's full of intricacies and details, and to each one we need to give attention. The first thing that I want you to note then is that Luke teaches us to tune our hearts and our minds to the preaching and the reading of the gospel by teaching us to read it as a harmonious narrative of fulfillment. What do I mean by a harmonious narrative of fulfillment? He makes mention of the fact that many have undertaken to do the very same thing. That is, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke recognizes that others have set their hands to write Gospels. There were some in the early church who began to compile these accounts. They're not the Gospels that we have, per se. We have early testimony, for instance, from a man named Papias, who gave a great deal of time and energy to interviewing people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life as they passed through his town. Every time they came through, he would interview them and he would record their accounts and internalize them. But God ordained that there should be four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who would write the Gospels that would comprise his word. They were doing the same thing. They were gathering these eyewitness testimonies. In many cases, these testimonies we'll talk about were their own accounts. Mark, for instance, was writing for Peter, or was primarily relying on the testimony of Peter, as church tradition tells us. Matthew and John, of course, were disciples of the Lord, but they were all working together in a harmonious way to account for what happened, for account for the ways in which God was fulfilling his promises through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Luke recognizes that there are other accounts and invites us in this recognition to see his account not as one that is meant to replace them, not as one that is meant to contradict them, but one that is meant to complement them. That is, he places his gospel in that stream with the other four gospels. Not that he was necessarily aware of John's account, which more than likely was yet to be written when Luke first set his hand to write. But almost certainly he had read Mark. And whether or not he read Matthew, we can't say for sure, but I'm quite sure that one who had followed all things closely had sat with Matthew and was aware of what he was doing and had spoken with him. But in any case, we have four Gospels given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit who inspired these men to write. And these are complementary perspectives on the life of Christ, and we should read them in this way. But many in the church have gone a little too far, I would say, in the history of the church, that is, by trying to create a so-called super-gospel. What, what I mean is they take the four gospels, and this is a very ancient tradition, they take the four gospels and they splice them together in one single flowing account. That's not how God has given us this account. It would be like, it would be like listening to that symphony. And rather than hearing the second violins, 
blending their harmony with the first violins as the first violins play the melody. The second violins waiting for the first violins to finish so that they can play their harmony alone. That's not how we listen to a symphony. That's not how we are meant to read the Gospels. But rather, we read them in harmony. How? By, as we come to Luke, focusing on Luke's narrative and then seeing how it's complemented as we go along by what the other gospel writers have written. Not by splicing it all together. And not by, as some have done, especially in the last 200 years, trying to get to the bottom of what really happened. I put that in quotes. Because there are many, many in the academy, many learned men who think that the gospels don't really give us an account of what Jesus did. They don't read the Gospels in harmony. What they do is they they read them in conflict. Here it's as if when the oboe stands up and plays the A, the trumpet section says, I refuse to tune my instrument. And as you hear this orchestra play, it's just discord. There's no harmony. It's not the fault of the composer. It's the fault of the musicians who refuse to tune to the A. In the same way, when people go looking for discord in these Gospels, as if they don't really give us a true account of what Jesus did. They create the discord on their own. They don't find it. They manufacture it. That's not how we're to read the Gospels. But we're to read it as an account of true eyewitness testimony concerning the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. You see? And so we want to read it as a harmonious account. We also want to read it in harmony with the Old Testament. Notice that Luke says that many have attempted to under, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That word could also be translated as the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke is talking about the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations, the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets that he made over the course of thousands of years to his people Israel, he understands and he wants us to understand that the things that happened in Jesus' life fulfilled those expectations. And so as we read on in Luke's gospel, if you merely look ahead, you can turn one page in your Bible and you see Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, which we'll come to in a few weeks. Here at the end of this, in verse 54 and 55 of chapter 1, Mary says these words in response to what God has done. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And again at the birth of John the Baptist, when Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit so that he would prophesy he said that the Lord has shown the mercy promised to our fathers. And to, he has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And so Luke wants us to understand that this gospel is a testimony concerning the work of God, the work of God to fulfill the promises that he made long ago. We tune our minds and tune our hearts to this gospel when we read it in these harmonies, 
in harmony with the other gospel accounts as complementary and in harmony with all of Scripture as it testifies to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also tune our hearts and our minds to reading this gospel when we understand that it is, it is a true and reliable narrative. I have already alluded to this point, but let me show you how Luke points to this fact. There in verse 2, as he continues this long sentence, he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, that is, have delivered these narrative accounts to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Again, I remember and I think of the opinions of many scholars and many academics who don't believe that we can really trust this word, who have created an alternate narrative of how these things came to us over the years and how they were developed through traditions and seeing these gospels in conflict. They simply have to ignore the words of Luke right here about how, it came, how he came to write this gospel. What Luke tells us is that there were eyewitnesses there were people who saw the work of Christ, who saw his ministry, who observed it and understood it. And they went out from Jerusalem testifying to what God had done in Christ, sharing the things that they saw and that they heard and that they touched and they understood concerning Christ. And they delivered them to others. Many of them wrote Gospels themselves. I've already mentioned Matthew and John who were disciples of our Lord. I've mentioned Mark who wrote for Peter. And here Luke was not a direct eyewitness to the work of Christ, but he was a disciple of these men. He was a companion of Paul, one who Paul calls the beloved physician, one who accompanied Paul in his times of difficulty, in his times of trouble. He was known to the other apostles and he knew the other apostles. He had known many in the early church who had seen these things. And he, being a doctor, had a scrupulous mind and attention to detail and had given his time and effort to following these things closely for a great deal of time, really from the beginning. And so when he set his hand to write, he was compiling these accounts of eyewitnesses. The eyewitness nature of the Gospels gives us a firm foundation from which to trust the truth of this testimony. I want you to listen as I read several passages from the other places in the New Testament which make this point, which emphasize this point. In John's Gospel, at the end of his Gospel, he writes about himself saying, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. In other words, he's in the account that he's just narrated. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And again, in 1 John chapter 1, he begins this letter with these words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And that word looked upon conveys more than just seeing again. It conveys the idea of seeing in a way where they understood the significance of what they beheld. Peter, too, in the passage we read together, 
writes this in 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter there is talking about the time when Jesus was transfigured and Elijah and Moses appeared with him on the mountain and they saw him in his glory. And they heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. He says, I saw this, not me alone, but I and others, James and John, we beheld this, we heard this. And again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 to defend the truth of the resurrection He says that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me. How can we know that Christ was raised, Paul says? Because there were many witnesses, and at the time when he wrote 1 Corinthians Many of those 500 and more people who saw the risen Christ were still alive. You could go to them. You could ask them, did you see the risen Christ? You could find Thomas and you could say, did you really touch his hand? And did you really touch his sides? A multitude of witnesses would say, yes, this is what we saw. This is what we beheld. This is what we heard. And you would have good reason to believe it. The gospel testimonies rest upon the testimony of eyewitnesses. And we're going to encounter this as we read the gospel of Luke. Luke and the other gospel writers have an ingenious way of cluing us in to when they rely on a particular eyewitness. I'll give you one example. When we come to the end of the gospel in Luke 24, we'll read about the Emmaus Road. And we'll read how there were two disciples walking on the Emmaus Road and the risen Christ, our Lord, appeared to them. But only one of those men is named. His name is Cleopas. We wonder why did Luke see fit to name one and not the other? And the answer is that this was an ancient first century way of citing your sources. In other words, what he's saying is that the man who saw this, from whom I got this testimony, who is still alive, is Cleopas. Go find him. Go ask him. Verify these things for yourself. And Theophilus and other early readers of Luke's gospel could have done this. What I want you to see very simply is that this testimony rests upon the testimony of eyewitnesses and therefore it is trustworthy. But one might say, do we really need all this? Did not Christ say to Thomas, blessed are those who not having seen have believed? We can affirm and must affirm that what Jesus said is true. That it is blessed to believe not having seen. And in that context, we need to understand what is being said. Over and over again in Jesus' ministry, he had pointed to the fact beforehand that it was necessary for him to go to the cross, to be crucified, to die and rise. The disciples did not understand this. And when Jesus confronted those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, he rebuked them for this. They should not have needed to see Jesus to believe it, When they heard the testimony of others, they should have believed it because it was consistent with what God had said by 
the holy prophets of old. And yet, God in his grace knows that all of us begin not as people of great faith, but we begin like his disciples, as those of little faith. And so graciously, like Thomas, he invites us to see that these things rest on true evidence. Though we ought to believe simply because God, when he speaks, his word is good, he's good for it. Nevertheless, God graciously gives us evidence to show us that indeed these things are certain, indeed these things are true, and that when we read Luke, just as when we read Matthew and Mark and John, we can trust that these are true accounts of the things that Jesus did, the things that he said, and completely trustworthy in every way. And so we read in tune when we read with trust. This indeed is a true testimony concerning the life and work of our Lord. Third, we read in tune when we read it as a narrative about Jesus, which climaxes in his death and resurrection. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at many others. We're going to look at the example of Mary. We're going to learn from her. We're going to look at the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we're going to learn from them. We're going to see John's ministry, and we'll learn from him too. But we must not forget that ultimately the central character, the one about whom all of this is about, is Jesus Christ. It all points to him. It all narrates the things that he did on his way to the cross. It all shows us that it was necessary that he died on the cross for our sins, to atone for our sins, that we might have life through faith in him. And that's what these Gospels are all about. So often we read stories in the Bible as though they merely are moralistic stories to teach us how to live. And it's true that God's Word does teach us how to live. That we ought to learn from good examples and we ought to learn from bad examples. We see the example of Mary's faith. We see the example of unbelief in Zechariah and we learn from them. But we don't learn from them apart from Christ. We learn from them by learning to trust in the Lord to whom they looked. So let us not forget that this gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about the Christ who had to die for us and who did everything that had to be fulfilled. It's about the Christ who was raised and is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Let us not neglect that truth lest we read this gospel out of tune. Fourth, we read this gospel as a narrative that is meant to encourage us, that is meant to assure us, that is meant to give us certainty of the truth of the things that we hear. Thus Luke goes forward saying that it seemed good to him also, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke writes to give Theophilus certainty. He writes so that Theophilus will be sure of the things that he has already learned. He's not writing to someone who's new to the faith, who's never heard these things. He's writing to someone who's already been instructed, who's already heard the testimony concerning Christ, who already understands the truth that the apostles have uh, have proclaimed. And yet, he needs a firmer grounding, a firmer assurance in the faith, and not just Theophilus, but those who are like him, 
Luke did not just write to one man, but to one man who was a benefactor who could enable this gospel to go forth to many people in the early church. And he writes to assure him of the certainty of these things. And once again, I recall from earlier what I said, how so often we read these things out of harmony. If we see conflict and contradiction, Luke, as you know, is fully aware that others have undertaken to write Gospels, and yet he's set out to write his own. He calls it an orderly account, not because Mark and Matthew are not orderly, but because he has in mind a different kind of order. You see, what I'm trying to explain is that what you read when you read the Gospels, you, you find that they're not always the same in terms of the narrative order. But that's not because Luke's order, the order that he has in mind, is strictly chronological. But Luke wants us to see things that Jesus did in relation to other things that Jesus did. And I'll give you a very clear example. In Luke chapter 3, when Luke is telling us about the ministry of John the Baptist, in Luke 3, 19 and 20, he tells us that Herod arrested John. And yet, in the very next verses, he tells us that John baptized Jesus. Luke is not telling us that John was, was arrested before he baptized Christ. Of course he's not. But Luke has in mind that he wants us to think about these things together. That's the order that he has in mind. Not always chronological, but an order that brings things into relationship so that we see connections and themes that come forth so that we understand not only the things that Jesus did, but the theological purpose for these narratives. The things, that is the truths about God and about his work that they proclaim to us. And so, when we read Luke's gospel, again, we don't find certainty by seeing it in conflict with other gospels. We find certainty by seeing it as a complement to the other gospels. And we read it within its narrative, letting Luke, as it were, play the melody in this symphony, following Luke's unfolding of this account. And that's how we're going to understand the things that he says, things that are difficult, things that are unclear. Again, another example, a preview of next week, as it were. In Luke 1.17, the angel tells Zechariah that one of the things that John the Baptist will do is turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And commentators struggle with that. What is Luke saying? Where does this phrase come from? What does he mean? I would submit to you that the answer is not found in Luke 1.17, but I was the narrative unfolds as we turn to Luke 3 and we see John engaged in a ministry that fulfills the things that the angel said to Zechariah. We see him in the act of turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And so we understand what it is that John is doing when he tells the tax collectors not to extort people and not to charge more than they're owed and the same to the soldiers, but to treat people with equity and with righteousness and with justice. What is he doing but turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just? Do you see how it's important to read this as a narrative that unfolds in a way that Luke intended, according to an order that Luke intended? And so again, we don't find certainty by trying to figure out, well, who had it right? Because they're not, strictly speaking, presenting everything in a chronological order. But we find unity by seeing that these 
Gospels complement one another in a harmonious way, in a beautiful way, all of them true. And does not the greatness of our Lord demand four perspectives? Just as any beautiful thing must be viewed from different sides, so too the Lord who made us, the Lord who is exalted at God's right hand, must be viewed through these four perspectives that we have. And in the days and months ahead, we're going to look primarily at Luke's perspective as we gather together in the morning. And we're going to see how Luke unfolds this narrative to give us certainty, to assure us that in the life and ministry of Christ, God has begun a work. That God has begun to fulfill all that he has promised. And it assures us not of only the truth of these things, but also the truth that if God has begun to work, he will certainly fulfill all that he has promised. You see, Luke wrote to people who were living in a difficult time. He wrote to people who were being persecuted, who were being killed, who were being martyred for their faith, who were waiting for the coming of Christ. Not the first coming, but they were waiting for his return. And they were waiting through much difficulty at times. And Luke wanted them to be certain not only that the things they had learned were true, but also that the things that they had learned about what Christ would do, those were certain as well. He wanted them to be assured that the God who begins a work always sees it through. And so, just as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he wrote this gospel knowing that the God who began a work in these Christians and the God who has begun a work in you will surely see it through to completion. For God is faithful to his promises. And if we're to read this gospel in tune, with our hearts and mind in tune, to the wisdom of God, to the work of God, then we read it in this way, as a narrative which is harmonious with the other gospels and with the word of God in all its parts, as a narrative that is true and reliable, as a narrative about Jesus, which concerns his death and his resurrection for our sake, and as a narrative that encourages us to persevere in the knowledge that God will do for us all that he has promised. And so, over the past few weeks, many have asked me, what will you preach on when you start? And I went back and forth and thought, about many options. I considered Matthew, I considered epistles, I considered the uh, letters like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. But ultimately I concluded, if I might paraphrase Luke's words, with these words, inasmuch as many have undertaken to preach these gospels, just as they, as they have been proclaimed by those who have gone before us for centuries, it seemed good to me also, having studied them carefully for some time past, to set out to preach them in an orderly way, you who are loved by God, that you all may have certainty of the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and certain and trustworthy in every way. For you, O oh Lord, are the only God you are God who cannot lie. Every word of yours is true and firmly fixed 
and every promise of yours must be fulfilled. For you are the God who is faithful and true, the God who abounds in steadfast love, God who fulfills all that he has spoken. And so we pray, O Lord, that in the days and months and years ahead, as we look to your word week in and week out, that you would confirm these things more firmly in our minds, that you would show us the excellencies of Christ through your word, that we might find joy in him, that we might place our trust in him, even those of us who have trusted him already, that our faith might grow and be firmly fixed as we look toward his coming with faith and endurance and perseverance. And this too, O Lord, is your work in us that you've begun and will surely bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So we pray with certainty of this, that you who have begun a good work will certainly bring it to completion at that day. We thank you for that word, and we thank you for that work. We thank you for our Lord, your Son, who you sent to save us from our sins. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.